the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48 Islanders of Canada. Today's guest, Colonel Dwayne Hobbs, CD, Commander of 32 Canadian Brigade Group. I think one of the most absurd things that's ever happened to me was while I was deployed in the Golan Heights, that for some reason, and I'm not sure exactly how, I was selected to be the United Nations Christmas tree officer. Best job I ever had. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. One thing you can say about the Canadian Armed Forces is that we are fair. We're fair in how we treat our applicants who wish to join the Canadian Forces. We're fair in the training that we provide our new recruits, whether it's tough or the training conditions that we put them through. It's always considered fair. Everybody has an opportunity to succeed. When it comes to leadership training, we make sure that that is conducted fairly as well. Even when we're in combat, we behave fairly. We give our opponents the opportunity to surrender. And when they do come into our custody, we take good care of them. Everything we do in the Canadian Forces is fair. And unfortunately, This culture of fairness has affected my ability to produce the podcast. In the spirit of fairness, I wanted to have a good, diverse mix of all types of members of the Canadian Forces. And by doing so, I have robbed you of great people to listen to. For example, I've recently recorded the story of Chief Warrant Officer Scott Patterson, who is a male member of the Canadian Forces. This episode is with Colonel Dwayne Hobbs, who is a member of Canada's Army Reserve. And I have an appointment scheduled with retired Lieutenant General Peter Devlin, who's a member of the Canadian Army. All these people have been on my waiting list in a spirit of fairness while I was waiting for someone from the Royal Canadian Navy or the Royal Canadian Air Force or someone who does not look like or reflect these three individuals in order to produce a fair podcast. So what I'm going to do and how I'm going to change things and flip things around is I'm going to proceed under the concept that if I build it, they will come. So if I keep producing excellent episodes for you to listen to, and I keep getting you quality guests to enjoy, that will be the driving motivator to attract a greater diverse spectrum of the Canadian forces overall, rather than sticking to my comfort zone, which is the Canadian Army and the Army Reserve in general. I want to thank everybody who has come onto Facebook and given me a Facebook like on the Facebook page for the Canadian Military History Podcast. I seem to be getting notifications every single day that somebody has enjoyed or picked up or has become a new listener to the podcast, and I really appreciate all of those Facebook likes. I want to also give a belated shout out to Babikma, who left me a rating on iTunes. He left me five stars on November 28th, 2014. So a little bit belated, as I said. He says, please keep it up. This is exactly what all ranks should be listening to. Thanks, Babikma. Somebody called 30-odd-6 for the win on May 22nd, 2015 has posted a five-star review as well. He says, I stumbled across this podcast on Facebook by accident. Initially, I was disappointed that it wasn't about Canada's legendary soldiers, sailors, and airmen such as Buzz Burling, Billy Bishop, or Leo Major at all. But honestly, Mike's format is so much better. He's recording the stories of individuals who are perhaps not quite as famous, but are just as dedicated and professional in their service for this great nation. Each episode brings something new and interesting. 
Another thing I like is that the episodes tend to be 25 to 30 minutes in length, roughly the length of time it takes me to drive to and from work. Anyways, thanks Mike for the great podcast, and thank you to everyone who has served. You have my undying respect. So thank you very much, 30-odd-6, for the win. Today's guest on the show is somebody that I have had on the waiting list for quite some time. Colonel Dwayne Hobbs and I have had a long history together. We have served in what can be called an arranged marriage for over 20 years. We started off working as platoon commander and platoon 2IC when I was a sergeant. We served as CO and RSM and then most recently as brigade commander and brigade sergeant major. I've been very privileged and very lucky in the officers that I've been paired with, including Lieutenant Colonel Neal, Lieutenant Colonel Vernon, and so many others. Each of them have been officers of the highest caliber, and I'm very proud to have served with all of them. However, the longest period of service I have ever had was with Colonel Hobbs. I have a couple of quick anecdotes about Colonel Hobbs and my experiences with him. Once, when we were at the platoon level, I always credit him with teaching me a very valuable lesson, and that lesson is that artillery can be used as a navigational aid. And he laughs every time I bring it up, but it was part of our plan. We were traveling through on an exercise through some of the thickest bush in all of Petawawa. It was in the northern part of the base, and we were traveling our 30-person platoon at approximately one kilometer an hour. It was pitch black. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And it was perhaps six hours of nonstop branch face. If you've been an infantry soldier and you've trained in some of our finest training areas, you know what branch face is. We had a number of British soldiers attached to our platoon as well. So we had to integrate them into the Canadian wilderness. They were embedded into various positions throughout our sections. We knew that our timings were going to be tight and we knew that there was a possibility that when we got to the objective, we might be disoriented towards the direction of the enemy. So at approximately five minutes prior to H hour, Lieutenant Hobbs ordered an artillery strike, which was simulated by the enemy force by dropping artisims on their position. This gave us five minutes, not only notice of when our own H hour was to be executed, but also oriented us towards the direction of the enemy so that we could launch our assault in the pitch black and achieve our success, which was accomplishing our mission. Interestingly enough, as we left that position, the sun was rising, as would be expected, and one of our soldiers was stung or bitten by some type of creature in Petawawa and immediately went into anaphylactic shock. So we ended up having to administer first aid and uh, jabbing him with another soldier's EpiPen because this soldier had never experienced that type of reaction before, so he had no idea what was going on to his body. One of the other soldiers recognized it immediately, and we managed to treat the soldier effectively. A little bit of a shorter story, a little bit funny, as being command team partners, you're always on your cell phone with whoever it is you're teamed up with. So when you have young children, they do tend to pick up on the language that you use while you're on the phone. One night, we were making popcorn in the kitchen, and my son reaches down on the floor and picks up an unpopped piece of popcorn. And he holds it up victoriously, saying, Look, Dad, it's Colonel Hobbs. (laughs) And... I told him that story. He thought it was pretty funny, and I still reflect on that, and I'm still laughing about that one story. Now, one of the regrets that I have is I never got to serve with Colonel Hobbs operationally. And as much as I did want to deploy to Afghanistan during that period of Canada's history, I made arrangements to do so. So I spoke to my wife, who was hesitant, but still provided her support 
in my desire to deploy to Afghanistan. I spoke to my employer and I made it clear that I needed some time off to deploy and to do the pre-deployment training as well. And the last person on my hit list was Colonel Hobbs. So I walked in the office and I said to him that I wanted to self-identify for Afghanistan. And he looked at me and he said, you're the RSM. I need you here. I don't need you in Afghanistan. I need you here. And I was shocked. I mean, I understood my role as the regimental sergeant major of the Toronto Scottish Regiment. I understood my responsibilities, but I had to reconcile that with the fact that I personally wanted to deploy to Afghanistan and do my part, the same part that I was demanding or expressing to my soldiers. And that kind of grounded me for a moment. And I never did get to deploy to Afghanistan. I did get to deploy eventually to Sierra Leone. I served there with honor and I did my job effectively. I got to meet and work with some great people, but uh, I didn't get the chance to deploy with Colonel Hobbs and work with him in an operational context. That doesn't diminish our service and our time together. We have had a great experience. Colonel Hobbs has always been the person that I would go to first if ever I messed up and he never really condoned my mistakes, but he understood, and when it was time, he supported me when I needed it. Here's my interview with Colonel Dwayne Hobbs. Colonel Hobbs, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Now, I have to be very careful here because I worked with you a lot during my career, and I know most of the stories, but I want to talk first about how you and I first met. And you and I first met when I was a Master Corporal, and you were an officer cadet and had just joined the Toronto Scottish Regiment. That's right. That was 1992. I had spent the summer in Gagetown and I had come back and we were, I think, likely in Petawawa for summer concentration. And I was in a rifle section filled with other officer cadets. Oh, that's right. Yes. With Master Corporal Cudmore. That's right. Now with the CBC. And he was responsible for instructing me over and over and over again on the use of the light machine gun. And we had a very interesting two-week exercise. That was one for the record books. We had a full company of Toronto Scottish in the field, led by Colonel Taillon, major at the time, and all three platoons, all three sections in each platoon was all Toronto Scottish. A very robust time for the regiment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was a great time to be in the regiment and to be joining because there were, were so many new soldiers. Many of them are actually still serving today. Right. Not too many of the master corporals, but there's so many of that group of people that have gone on to bigger and better things in the army and beyond. It's actually pretty impressive to think about those times. And certainly from my perspective, it was one of the things that probably kept me in the army. We were a very, very tight knit group of certainly junior officers at that point in time. That's right. And it, and it was a regiment that was on the road to becoming what it is today. And very, very exciting time. I thought great exercise and a lot of good friends for life built at that time. And not only that, from that select group, I mean, three became commanding officers. That's right. Yeah. Including yourself. Yeah. There were at least uh, at least one other major who probably could have been commanding officer if he hadn't joined the police force, New York Regional Police. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> three commanding officers, Lieutenant Colonel Neal, Lieutenant Colonel Moore and myself. A lawyer and, I believe, Officer Cadet Goodfellow, one of the first female officers in the combat arms who tore down some barriers and and was a successful officer in the regiment up until the time that she moved out of the city. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, those were good times. But uh, the story that you're avoiding is that the, <laughs> the hat story. I know that for a fact. We were in exercise in Kingston either later that fall or the next spring, perhaps. I was still an officer cadet, and I had left my Balmoral, my headdress, behind in an O group. We had a meeting where a few things were being decided for a range activity the following day, and my hat went missing. 
and it was kidnapped, but I received a ransom note right. in my room that was made to, written in such a way as to obscure the drafter, but later determined it was you. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you you taken a hostage note without writing any H's uh, right. for uh, Mr. Obbs, you have taken my at hostage, I believe is how it started. I still actually have a copy of it That's right. in a scrapbook of the time that my hat went missing. And it uh, taught me a valuable lesson about looking after my kit, for sure. That's right. Now, the penalty wasn't too harsh, though. All you had to do was ask for it back. But uh, an officer cadet having to ask for his hat back from a master corporal, I think, is a pretty harsh penalty in that context. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's certainly not one of the worst things that's happened to me in my military career, but certainly one of the more memorable ones. And it certainly brings a smile to my face when I think about that. And having gone from officer cadet to full colonel, it sort of reminds you of where you came from. Absolutely. When you think about those sorts of situations. And I don't always bring my hat everywhere I go now, but I'm much, much better at it than I, than I used to be. Mm-hmm. Well, talking about your memories in the Canadian Forces, why don't you tell the listeners why you chose to join the Canadian Forces? That's a great question. I don't have a military background in terms of family history, but I went to high school in southwestern Ontario at a time in a period of recession, and and there was high unemployment in the area, and I certainly never really wanted to work, and I didn't want to make a job. I never wanted to make a job, and and those were really the only things that were readily available to us when I was a high school student. The town was significant unemployment and not a lot of opportunities. And one day, uh, a friend of mine in high school told me about the militia and the local army reserve unit in Chatham, Ontario. And he said, why don't we go check it out and see whether we can join or not and actually get full-time employment for the summer. So he and I went down and started the process of enrolling in the Essex and Kent Scottish. It certainly took a long period of time driving back and forth between Chatham and Windsor to the recruiting center and going through all of those administrative hoops. And obviously the Essex and Kent Scottish was a small organization because it was a, a satellite armory of the larger Windsor armory. But he and I enrolled and were sworn in. And the night before we were supposed to start training, he went to a pool party and broke his femur. Oh, no. Wow. And never served a minute in uniform. But that summer I went to Meaford and I was actually in Meaford the day that the Minister of National Defense announced the investment into Meaford from what had effectively just been arranged with a couple of buildings into the facility is today. I was there with Parent Beatty as a private recruit. Right. So that started a long relationship with Meaford. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but certainly it was a time of expansion and a time of growth. The, the conservative white paper had just come out about defense. I had a friend that had just decided that he was going to join the Navy so that he could be on board one of the submarines that we were going to procure. (laughs) Right. But it was also the Cold War. I mean, it was before the collapse of the Soviet Union, and so there was a perception of an existential threat, and the Canadian Brigade in Germany was where it was at. And certainly, we were very heavily involved in the United Nations at that time. The mission that was the most important and most relevant at the time would have been Cyprus, I suspect. That's right, yeah. But many of the people that I was serving with at that time were inevitably interested in doing flyover tasks to NATO. The guys that I were serving with wanted to serve in Norway because there were longer sort of deployments. And that was kind of what I was hoping to get myself involved in. But from there, I I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I certainly wanted to go to university, but I'm certainly a very different person than I was when I was 17 when I walked into the armory for the first time. So it was a Cold War kind of world, but I was undoubtedly a very self-assured, perhaps arrogant (laughs) teenager at the time. And I think one of the things about my time in training that first summer, I was exposed to limitations and challenges that had I'd never even considered having to face before. And so some of those master corporals had names too. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, the, the Master Corporals from then, there are not too many of them around. I guess Master Corporal Moberly, Master Corporal Chang. But I certainly think about Corporal Wilkins had a significant influence on me at that time. And he's now the Brigade Sergeant Major of 31 Canadian Brigade Group. That's right. Sean Wilkins and another Chief Foreign Officer, Rob Talek, was a private just finishing his first course the first time I went on exercise in June of 1988. So some special folks, a lot of Chief Foreign Officers. And I think it, and on another level, it, that set the conditions for my career and my willingness and the opportunity to learn from NCOs which I'm not sure other officers have necessarily been given that opportunity to have those friendships and those connections with NCOs that can help shape you as a leader. I think some of the more practical aspects of my command style have certainly come from that experience. But having the challenges that I had when I was 17 certainly got me hooked in a sense of adventure and the opportunity and the exposure to things that you weren't going to get from a normal sort of work experience that really got me hooked. Absolutely. Now, did you go directly from the ENK to the Toronto Scottish or was there a gap in there? Yeah, there was a brief gap. I was contemplating going to Royal Military College at the time, but I certainly very quickly after the summer in training, I decided to accelerate myself out of high school. It was back in, you know, there was still a grade 13. So I took a significant amount of my free time and applied it to basically skipping grade 12 so that I could get to university sooner. And the the world was opened up to me. I had freedom and opportunity. And so I stepped away from my Army career for about a year, which was probably a mistake uh, at the time (laughs) in terms of not really understanding how long it would take to get back in. Right. But I wanted to go to university. Wasn't too keen on Royal Military College. It didn't seem to be the, the right fit for me. And the University of Toronto had always been where I wanted to go. And that's what the decision I made. And so when I was on my way to Toronto, I started looking around for a unit to join. I certainly wanted to join a kilted regiment. And I only had had exposure to the 48 Highlanders. And as a consequence of some barrack room disagreements, um, (laughs) I knew quite quite well that I was not going to join the 48 Highlanders. Despite the fact that nowadays I have nothing but the greatest respect for the 48 Islanders of Canada, I, as an officer cadet, I certainly wasn't going to be tempted into joining them. And so that sort of by default led me to Fort York Armory and the Toronto Scottish Regiment, which was indeed closer to where I was living at the time. And so on a Tuesday night, I walked into Fort York Armory and began the process of joining the Reserve Entry Scheme Officer Program. Right. And the rest is history. Absolutely. Now, I would normally go to ask you what the world was like when you joined and what you were like when you joined, but you flushed out those questions quite well. So I'll just move on. What was your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? This is a really interesting question because there's lots of things that I could say because I have so many fantastic memories of all of it. I'm not sure I want to speak to achievements because I've never looked at anything that I've achieved as as something that that I had set out as a goal. I'm well past the goal setting in terms of my personal career. But I'd have to say that the opportunity to command a platoon in Bosnia in 1998 really is the most important thing that happened to me in my career. I mean, as a I say this to people now that that I joined the militia and watched the militia become an army reserve over the course of my career. And that was the moment where I stopped being a militiaman and became a reservist and for the first time self-identified as a professional. And certainly I grew up a great deal in Bosnia and it was the real deal. I mean, in many ways I became a professional and I became a veteran and I became worldly and I self-identified as a military professional really for the first time. 
and people's attitude towards you changes and your attitude towards yourself changes and having the level of responsibility that I had in commanding a platoon house in Bosnia under a NATO remit sort of set the tone for everything that happened after that and the responsibility burden of command but the closeness with the Royal Canadian Regiment and certainly the broader peer group that I had, that has to be the most important thing that's happened to me in my career because everything else falls from that. If that experience had not occurred, I suspect that most of the things that followed that wouldn't have occurred either. And so your first opportunity to command an overseas mission is the thing that I would say to any junior officer would be really the first major test of whether or not you got it or not. And mm. uh, once again, I was in a situation where as a platoon commander in a platoon house, you're not, you're certainly being supervised. You have a boss and a chain of command above you. But the day-to-day work of platoon on operations is something where the senior NCOs play a, a very important role, a critical, absolutely critical role. And I learned so much from the warrant officers and, and sergeants that were in that platoon and in that platoon house that it, it is something that is really irreplaceable as, as a life experience. And you still cross paths with those people from that platoon from time to time. Yeah, absolutely. Not so much. I mean, some of the NCOs have subsequently retired, but some of the troops that were in that platoon have moved up the ranks, and I hear from them every once in a while. should probably spend more time reaching out to some of them because I owe them them a great deal (laughs) for that experience and that opportunity and, and frankly, that privilege of being a reservist, commanding a a platoon of regular force soldiers. It's really kind of second to none. Best job I ever had. (laughs) Now, is there a memorable experience that you want to add to answering this question? Something that maybe can be expressed in an anecdote or always makes you laugh when you think back about it? Well, I get, I get a million things that make me laugh, and I think that's one of the things that's uh, kept me at this game for as long as it has. I think one of the most absurd things that's ever happened to me was while I was deployed in the Golan Heights, that for some reason, and I'm not sure exactly how, I was selected to be the United Nations Christmas tree officer right. for the United Nations Middle East, and it's sort of... I wouldn't say totally absurd, but kind of a very bizarre story of collecting Christmas trees and donating money to the Jewish National Fund and collecting the trees with a bunch of drivers from the Logistics Battalion's transport platoon, which was made up of entirely soldiers from the Japanese Self-Defense Force, (laughs) and delivering the Christmas trees to a series of UN locations across the north of Israel, and in fact attempting to get the Christmas trees over to Syria before Christmas, which we did not actually end up doing. The Christmas trees were delivered on the 27th of December (laughs) in the year 2000, just because of the time that it takes to move anything really from one side of the disengagement zone to the other. And so what a strange experience. A driver from Newfoundland, Japanese truck drivers, a photographer from Austria, and a liaison officer from the Israeli Defense Force who was a, had been called up to duty just for this task to, to accompany me on this. But he was actually a vet, a veterinary in, uh, in his day job. <laughs> So very, very bizarre. I mean, I, I think I laughed the entire time. Right. Because we have a Canadian perspective of what a Christmas tree looks like. And you can chop down a tree in in Israel and the tree will be 75 years old, but it'll be three feet tall. Right. Sort of hundreds of these little Charlie Brown Christmas trees collected and some of them really not delivered on time to meet the Christmas need. But certainly I'll always enjoy that story. And I've got some great photos of moving truckloads of Christmas trees across Israel. And the irony of it is, is that I never actually got to got to visit Bethlehem. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> just, just, despite despite having spent seven months in the Middle East and in Israel, I never got there. It was, uh, just not in the cards, based on threat levels and issues ongoing in the fall and winter of 2000 in, in Israel. 
Yeah, that's a great story. And certainly a lot of people will remember me from my involvement in a series of royal visits, which are all uniquely great experiences because you get to travel the country. You work very, very hard during a royal visit, but the opportunity to be with the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall on one visit, Her Majesty and the Duke of Edinburgh on another, and lastly, uh, the visit of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge in 2011. What a great way to see the country. I highly recommend it. (laughs) Well, sign me up then. So moving on to the next question, who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered? Well, there's lots of memorable characters. I mean, my regiment and the Canadian Armed Forces is full of all of them, but without a doubt, the person that has been most important to me in, in terms of being a mentor would have to be Brigadier General Retired Julian Chapman. Absolutely. He has been my boss or served as my boss for the better part of 15 years, and I am the officer today that I am because of him and the example he set in the sort of the dynamic and creative sort of individual that he is with a, an absolute heart of gold and, and, a, and a passion for service that I always found to be completely contagious. And, and it's Julian Chapman, without a doubt, as a person that's had the most influence on me. And I've been proud to serve with him and, and alongside him. Well, I can echo your sentiment because I've used some of the lessons, some of the professional development lessons that he's used both in Africa and in the police in developing mentorship and leadership and evaluating your learner's potential to grow and develop along certain lines. Things that he initiated when he was a major, I was able to recall and apply in different circumstances throughout my career as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he's just what a great mentor and teacher. He's had that impact on so many people and just his ability to see clearly, to reframe and actually create a strategic framework around which to approach problems has always been so helpful. Absolutely. Certainly. And he is a great storyteller, so hopefully one day he'll agree to do an episode as well. Oh, he should. Absolutely. (laughs) Now, we've come to the final question, which is a little bit interesting because this is the question that you recommended. Mm -hmm. So what is the greatest challenge you've had to overcome in your service? Why did I pick this question? I don't. I, I mean, this is the this is this is my greatest challenge. Is that that answering your own question? <laughs> answering my own question. That's a, it's 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 interesting. It, sometimes for reservists, the most difficult thing to do is to show up because you you got terms of service that sort of allow you to commit to the level that you're comfortable in the context of your other life priorities, whether it be school, work, family, what have you. And I've actually never had that problem. I've never, I've never once not wanted to show up to be there, to be involved, and sometimes done it to enormous personal cost. And I think very conscious of the opportunity cost in my civilian life that that's caused me. But I've loved every minute of it. I think I'll have to be very, very specific about this. I think I had the opportunity to serve in Kandahar and it's sort of embedded with the governor's palace in Kandahar province. And the tone of the mission and the breadth of responsibility and the dynamics of it were complex enough as it was. Undoubtedly, people will talk about the mission to Afghanistan in many, many different ways from many perspectives for a long time to come. And I don't think we've really seen the end of the challenges for Afghanistan. But I've built a career around being able to listen. From the first peace support operations I I was deployed on and frequently being responsible for translating things from a regular force language into things that are understood by new soldiers and by civilians is, is sort of an inherent and implied task for the Army Reserve. Afghanistan is probably... 
about as different a culture as you can find from the one that I grew up in. And so the struggle to attempt to understand certainly could sympathize with people, but empathy, communication, and just general sense-making of what needed to be done and operating a system where you're trying to get the best out of people with nothing but good intentions the never-ending onslaught of obstacles to progress and to stability and to mentoring and, and the layers of complexity and tangled webs of interpersonal relationships that impact every aspect of what was undertaken in our mission in Afghanistan. It was a challenge 26 hours a day. And <laughs> right. I think about it frequently about what, what if I could go back and do it again, what would I do differently? And I think one of the things that is most troubling for me personally is that it was a mission that people were telling us it couldn't be done before we even mounted it. So it's one of these things about being there for the win. The most important thing that you can do as a leader is not give up. And that having the, the resilience and the will and the commitment to see, see the mission through to its conclusion fully cognizant of all of the challenges that are inherent in having, quite frankly, a crystal clear understanding of what the challenges are, but having a constant barrage of people telling you that it can't be done or that there's some ulterior motive to behind everything that <laughs> just sort of almost like a virus that you have to fight. And it's sort of a metaphor for an immune system to let the naysaying and the bad ideas wash away, understanding that legitimate criticisms and, and challenges that, that are self-evident, but not to let it get you down. Yeah. And continue to push and push and push to make things incrementally better. Certainly the most difficult thing I've ever done and a very costly costly experience for Canada and for, for Afghanistan and so many other countries. And, and part of me will never come home from, from, uh, from Kandahar. Right. But I come out at the end of it having a, a very, very strong sense of who I am and what my values are and just total respect for the Afghan people and, and respect for, for the soldiers that uh, that I served with while I was there. Certainly. Yeah. Now, sir, we've come to the end of the four questions. What's next for you and what's next for 32 Canadian Brigade Group? Well, I mean, let's start with the 32 Canadian Brigade Group. 32 Canadian Brigade Group is headed in the right direction. I'm handing over command of, of the formation this year, actually in a, in a couple of weeks, to Colonel Andrew Zalvin, who's a superb officer, is vastly more intelligent than, than myself. <laughs> I would dare say that his sense of humor is not quite what mine is, but uh, <laughs> he and I can debate that at a, at a later date. So 32 Brigade is going to continue to do what it's doing. It's involved in operations right now domestically in support of the Royal Canadian Air Force at 8 Wing and Trenton. And I think that task will probably time expire before the fall. But we've got uh, Exercise Stalwart Guardian, which is a, the annual exercise. A number of soldiers still deployed, whether it be Kuwait, Iraq, and frequently soldiers that we're sending to Eastern Europe as part of Operation Reassurance. I think those are, continue to be an important part of what we do. 32 Brigade will always be known as the formation that's in, in one of the most multicultural and diverse cities in the world. And, and so we get to leverage that those cross-cultural competencies and language skills that would be less common elsewhere in the country. And so we see soldiers deploying a great deal. Without a doubt, the Influence Activities Company inside 32 Brigade is going to continue to be an important component of what we do in terms of supporting the regular Army's road to high readiness. But I think overall, we're going to see a shift of the entire Army to being better integrated 
between regular and reserve. I mean, it's, it's an operational imperative that we work together and, and develop common training and collaborate more frequently than what we've necessarily done in the past. And so I think those are the things that are in the cards for not just 32 Brigade, but for the Army as a whole. Uh, for me personally, I'm off to the Canadian Forces College for about 10 months to take the National Security Program, which I guess is the developmental period four for officers, which is a superb opportunity. One Army Reservist is given this opportunity per year, and I, I'm very much looking forward to this. Presumably the last professional development opportunity I'm going to have in my career. Right. And what a fantastic opportunity, one that I'm very pleased that my civilian employer has given me the opportunity to step away from civilian work and learn something else. And, and just the opportunity to continue to serve is an excellent one. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, sir, we've come to the end of the questions. Is there anything you'd like to say just to summarize your episode? Well, I'd just like to thank you for the opportunity to contribute to the program. I think the podcasts are uh, an excellent program, an excellent resource, and a great way to capture some of the thoughts, feelings, and, and experiences of Canadian Forces personnel serving and retired. It's an important thing to capture because it, thinking back to some of the things that I would like to learn from soldiers of bygone eras is, is to get to hear the voice, get to hear the tone, get to hear the, the context from in which they served and, and what they were thinking about at the time that they were serving would right. give some insights. And I think for posterity's sake, this is uh, superb. And, and I want to thank you for doing this. And thank you personally for your years of camaraderie and, and friendship. And we've been through some strange things together uh, <laughs> dating back to more than 20 years. And so thanks, Mike, for thinking of me and I really appreciate the opportunity. You're very welcome, sir. Well, I've enjoyed our years together as well, and I want to thank you for agreeing to be a guest on the show and helping me with getting my initial steps in the right direction. My pleasure. Take care, Mike. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at MikeLacroixCMHP at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.